Welcome to the CSBS podcast, the podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. Oftentimes, natural disasters cause not only physical damage, but also they can become an agent for many secondary mental health adversities, especially within youth populations. In this episode, CSBS team members, Christina Alvarez and Kaylee Lucasina, speak with Dr. Tara Powell, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work on the topic of mental health and youth, particularly during times of crisis. We discuss both the virtual pilot studies and proven methods alike, including the Journey of Hope intervention program that focuses on normalizing emotions, coping strategies, peer support, and other protective factors. Dr. Powell addresses how mental health providers are tackling these challenges, and more largely, she shares some tips on coping with mental exhaustion, uncertainty, and staying connected during these difficult times. Uh, before we dive into discussing uh, your research on mental health, uh, we would like to start with the background question. And we would like to get a bit personal and hear about your journey. Uh, how did you get here? Uh, what got you interested in social work and mental health? Yeah, great. Thank you, uh, Christina. And yeah, so my my journey was pretty interesting. Uh, I have been working in um, post-disaster mental health since uh, about 2005. And I actually was uh, going to school for public health and social work. Uh, and I was really interested in um, working in post-disaster scenarios, but more globally. When I was going to get my master's degree, I was actually living in New Orleans. And in 2005, in New Orleans, Katrina hit. I realized during um, during uh, my studies that, oh, this is exactly what I'm interested in. Um, and I am dealing and living through a complex emergency uh, within the city I'm, I'm based. And so that, uh, that experience uh, really molded where I am today. And so I finished my uh, master's degree in social work and public health, and I actually started working in the public school system in New Orleans. Um, and it was pretty chaotic there. Uh, I learned a lot about the different mental health issues that children face and also their parents and, and disaster recovery and, you know, the length of time that that takes and complexities involved in disaster recovery. I worked in New Orleans for a few years as a clinical social worker in the schools. Uh, and then after that, got a little bit frustrated with the lack of services uh, that were available for children uh, over the long term to prevent uh, mental health challenges uh, that they could experience uh, after a after a mass trauma such as Katrina, but also a lot of the children that were more adversely impacted were those that lived in really high poverty settings, and there just wasn't anything available for them. And so I decided to go and get my PhD. And since then, I've continued to study post-disaster mental health and worked uh, in the U.S. in the many different disaster settings, but uh, you know, also in a few different global settings, working with children and parents and care providers uh, to support their mental health recovery. That's great. Thank you so much. So I, I 
really like this idea that you've worked nationally, but also internationally. What are some of the similarities or differences that you found working across these many different contexts? Yeah, so, you know, globally, um, one thing that I've seen both in the U.S. and abroad is that after disasters, people really come together to be able to support each other. And this idea of uh, community recovery is so important. Uh, you see this both both within the United States, uh, right after natural disasters. We've seen it within COVID in the beginning stages where people really came together to try to support each other. But also, you know, internationally within natural disasters, these wider communities come together to help people who to get their basic needs met and then also any other needs they may they may have. Um, so that community level is really important. You also see common mental health symptoms after disasters globally. Anxiety can go up, feelings of depression over the long term. There also is post-traumatic stress symptoms that uh, people can experience, but those look different in different cultural contexts. So the way a person may experience post-traumatic stress in the United States is a little bit different than somebody who may be in the Philippines, for example. Just the symptomology is similar, but, but looks a little bit different in how they manifest those difficulties. So Tara, um, kind of bouncing off that and what you mentioned earlier about your experience working with children in schools, what are some of the most common mental health services that children typically receive in school? And also, how have those been adapted during the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so uh, typically, there is this wide, vast array of mental health services that are available, and it's really um, dependent on the child's need. There are these universal programs, and they're essentially social-emotional programs that are delivered to all children to help them build um, skills so that they can interact in a healthy way with their peers, reduce bullying in schools, learn small social-emotional strategies, and any child can really receive these services. And then there's another level, and this is the level that I tend to work on. And what these are is these are called prevention interventions. So uh, prevention interventions are really developed for children who have have experienced some kind of trauma, for example, or they are at risk for future mental health difficulties. And within these programs, uh, what we do is we try to build different protective factors for children. So help them learn healthy coping strategies, um, uh, help them gain peer support, um, help them establish healthy relationships to prevent future mental health difficulties. And then the highest level within schools is they're called targeted or indicated interventions. And these programs are really designed for children who um, are experiencing significant distress. So social workers, counselors, or school psychologists may all work with with these children uh, on an individual level or small group level to actually treat mental health symptoms. So a child who participates in a a program that's universal may also 
be participating in other programs too if they have you know significant levels of mental health distress. So it's looking quite a bit different in COVID. Uh, the services have really been disrupted. One thing that we're trying to do is just figure out how do we actually still provide social emotional programming for children during this time? A lot of interventions and programs have been altered to be in a virtual format, although many children aren't actually receiving these programs right now. A lot of them, you know, are still in the pilot phase, trying to figure out how do you actually reach the child with uh, technology challenges that they may have. And so... I actually am piloting a program that I've worked really closely with, co-developed and researched over the years to be delivered in a, a virtual format. And so we've had to alter a lot of the activities, but the content is really similar. Asking children to think about healthy ways to cope, so building those coping strategies, but doing it in a small group virtually so that they can interact with each other learn from their peers, and try to identify healthy coping strategies that they may have right now, and what they can do to deal with all of the stressors that's going on during the pandemic. Is this referring to uh, the journey of, journey of hope that you It did? is. Okay. Yeah. Could you elaborate yeah. a little bit more about this model? Yeah, absolutely. When I was working, living and working in New Orleans post-Katrina, working in the schools, there really wasn't services. There really weren't these social-emotional services for children who had experienced Katrina, were exhibiting distress, but didn't have clinical levels of, uh, they weren't clinically diagnosed with a mental health-ish disorder or clinical levels of mental health issues. And so uh, my colleagues and I saw that there just wasn't available programs that were relevant, culturally relevant to meet the needs of these children. Identifying this, we um, it's actually a funny story how the program even, began, the conceptualization of the program even began. I was working with the organization Save the Children And my supervisor at the time was called by uh, one of the heads of the school districts in New Orleans public schools. And they said, we're having a big problem. There's so much fighting going on in the schools. We had a huge fight within the, within the school um, with opposing, they were called termed gangs, but it was a middle school, so it wasn't formalized gangs. <laughs> but uh, there was a huge fight and they were going to expel 20 children. And they said, we have to do something because we can't have these children expelled. So a lot of the children who were having problems in schools were being expelled due to fighting or conflict with classmates, and then they were um, being transferred to other schools. So they were just rotating throughout schools, but not receiving any services. My supervisor looked at a few of us and she said, we have to do something. And so we said, okay, well, I think we can, you know, I think we can work with these uh, children. She said, okay, well, you know, go ahead and go in and, and work with these children and, and help them. Let, let's see if we can help them reduce some of the the behaviors, like the problem behaviors that are happening. We went within, went into the school and we just started talking to 
um, talking to the children that we were working with. So these are all middle schoolers, seventh and eighth graders, and just seeing what what's actually going on. What do you need? What what are these difficulties that you're having? And and a lot of them said, you know, we don't want to talk about Hurricane Katrina anymore. There are all these other things going on. A lot of them had been displaced from their homes and were moving house to house. There were overcrowded households. There was a lot of family conflict. With all of these issues that were going on, it was really these secondary adversities that were related to Katrina, but were not directly related to the impact or directly related to the storm. And so through that, uh, through a year of working with these children, we conceptualized and developed the Journey of Hope program. So what the Journey of Hope program is, is it's a eight-session model. We use different activities. Uh, we use arts, literacy, discussion, cooperative play, all focused around different emotions that are heightened in post-disaster context. So we talk about anger, fear, grief, um, anxiety, stress. And so these are all topics that are covered. And within each session, we work within these groups to help children uh, normalize some of the emotions that they're feeling. Uh, we learn from each other also on ways to cope, help them feel like they're not alone. So really gaining that peer support and relationships also with their peers, but also with care providers. Um, so both with us and also uh, we connect with parents as well. And so trying to really build protective factors to reduce the short and long-term mental health consequences that they could experience as related to the disaster and also all these secondary adversities. Yeah, thank you for sharing the story behind the model. That was so interesting to hear about how it came from um, <laughs> those more informal meetings and um, really in the moment of what you all were experiencing in the schools. So could you talk a little bit more now about how the model is being adapted for the COVID-19 pandemic as well as the virtual setting? Absolutely. So Save the Children is actually the organization who I was working for at the time, and they've adopted the program as one of their signature programs. So they've been delivering it pretty widespread throughout the U.S. and, and internationally since we since we developed it. And we've had to update and, and adapt the curriculum just based on the different cultural needs of children. But the pandemic has really provided a unique opportunity for us to be able to reach children that we might not be able to reach in person. When the pandemic happened, all of the programming that Save the Children was delivering, um, and most notably one of their biggest programs is Journey of Hope, they, they realized that social-emotional needs don't stop because the children aren't in school. And so I've been working really closely with them to identify what are these best strategies, best practices that we can do to virtually adapt the program. So we've taken a number of steps to be able to adapt it, to make sure that it's still relevant for the children, still accessible for them, still really meets those social emotional needs that they may have. The first step was really getting the organization involved uh, and making sure 
that there were the resources to be able to adapt the program. And once we recognized that, we also engaged uh, different community leaders from organizations that Save the Children had worked with to discuss what are the needs that they're seeing with the children right now. And we adapted some of the content based on that to address the needs, but also make it more COVID related. But there's also a lot of other challenges that that children are facing in addition to just being out of school. And so really looking at those and and trying to get a better understanding of, of how we can address those within the program. There was also the the challenge or the complication of transitioning it to a virtual model. So technology is always a really big challenge. And we had to think about all of the tech. Not, we, had, we had to think about it, um, but now we're actually working through it and managing and learning. So we're doing lessons learned in our pilot right now on what are the technical challenges that are coming up? How do we address those? And so what kind of platform should we use? How do we adapt activities? Because usually there's these cooperative activities and interactive games, and we can't do that in a virtual model uh, in the same way that we would do it in person. Within this adaptation, we're we're having a few stages of piloting um, to make sure before it's really widespread that children can access it. So we're in the initial pilot phase right now and learning a lot about technical challenges. <laughs> you know, many of the children are at home. Uh, a lot of the children that I'm working with in this pilot don't have great access to resources. Internet cuts in and out. Um, you know, in the Journey of Hope, the traditional model, how we have it in person, we have a small group and it's in a private setting. So there's confidentiality and they're able to feel like they're in a safe place that they can share. And one of the challenges with being at home is that they don't always have a place, a room that they can be in that's separated from siblings or family. And so one of the one of the girls that I was working with last week, she actually was participating in the program on a phone outside. And so that was really, really interesting. And so the video doesn't always work. The audio can cut out. But these are all considerations that we had to take into account and definitely working through them and and still reaching, you know, being patient and uh, with technological glitches, which I think we've all had to do now. <laughs> but also recognizing that, you know, a lot of these children do need these supports and working through the technology challenges is okay. It's just how do we maneuver and work through them? Well, I'm curious to hear after this fascinating story about the technology adaptation and the challenges you're facing, if some of the modifications of cha- or changes you've made to address the COVID-19 situation, you think they would stay or you would incorporate them as part of your uh, long-term program? I think so. Yeah. So right now we actually we're pilot testing, but we are looking uh, it's me and a team of other researchers and and clinicians, uh, practitioners um, and save the children. So it's this huge uh, group of us. What we are doing is we're looking at its efficacy. So does it work despite all of these technological challenges? 
Because one thing that we do know in other post-disaster settings is a lot of times outside of the pandemic and disasters, children are also out, out of school and they don't receive services, this type of programming when they actually may need it early on. And so having this model available virtually definitely looking at its efficacy and and how it can be implemented is so important because it's really going to, going to help us be able to reach children even in other settings such as you know a hurricane or there's an earthquake and children are separated all over the place they may be in different states than than one another but working with schools to be able to re-engage them even if they are not in not in the school setting. That's something positive then that it's coming out of COVID-19 after all. <laughs> it is, it is. We've talked a lot about um, having a virtual model for a, a long time, but there's been quite a bit of concerns about how that could look. You know, how do we make sure that children are in a safe setting where they can talk about their emotions and their feelings um, and feel comfortable sharing and, and also making it interactive. So uh, that is a very good thing that's come out of COVID so that we've been able to strategize and conceptualize and, and start putting into action how this would look. Yeah, it sounds like it really helped to jumpstart the virtual process. It yeah, it was, it was an impending process and we all knew it it should happen, um, and it was relevant right now with all of the all of the technology access is becoming very technological, and so having these types of programs uh, available to children is is just so important. Yeah, and I'm really happy that you all are going through the process of carefully testing it and before fully implementing. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, um, there has been. A little push for us to do wide-scale implementation prior to testing, but uh, we pushed back because we recognize the importance of making sure that it does work and it is having the impact that we are seeking it to have so that, you know, we don't want to harm children. We want to help them. And, you know, you've got to be very sensitive with social, emotional, and mental health programming. So there's do no harm for children who may already be vulnerable. Well, Thank you for sharing more information about the journey of hope intervention and how it's being adapted. We're very excited about that. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how we're dealing with COVID. And it seems like it's going to be a little bit longer term than most of us had hoped for. Most of us experience ebbs and flows of mental exhaustion mm -hmm. due to stressors. It could be from working from home and having multiple things on our plate all in the same space. But given that COVID is going to be with us for a while, what sorts of healthy mind exercises or other practices can we do at home to cope with this mental exhaustion? You know, there's a number of different um, things that can be really effective at home. Just practicing grounding techniques, taking different deep breaths and bringing yourself back to the present can take two minutes that can really help when you're feeling overwhelmed in the here and now, just noticing your surroundings. Also, there's so many good apps out there for meditation. 
And those can be really, really helpful. I know that a lot of people are experiencing challenges with sleep right now, for example, as a result of the the stressors of the pandemic. And with that, there, I actually listen to uh, Sleep Stories. It's a meditation. It's it's on the Calm app, and it just lulls you to sleep, and it, it's very soothing. And that's a wonderful thing that I do to go to sleep every night. And I know a lot of people that do it or that listen to that listen to these. We all have ebbs and flows. Some days go better than others. Some days are worse. Some days we may wake up and say, is this ever going to end? Um, This is really challenging. Another thing that is a great strategy is just doing some uh, cognitive coping. And so with that, just thinking, recognizing where you're at and doing small exercises to help reframe these, you know, maybe negative feelings. So even having just a gratitude journal. So waking up in the morning and writing down three things that, that are good in your life or three people you may have, you may feel gratitude for, you're grateful for. Um, and then also this can help the other person because if you say, for example, you write down these three people, just reaching out to them and letting them know, you know, I, w- I did a gratitude journal this morning and you're one of the people I'm grateful for. That can really help a person also who, I mean, we're all going through this pandemic. And so it can help a person who maybe didn't even know that you were so grateful for them and and uh, can really change that person's day as well. And so it can help you. It can help you remember all of the good things that you appreciate, um, but it also can help somebody else because it can brighten their day. So those are a few, a few things that you can do. And I have a whole laundry list of, uh, of other things, but I'll stop there. (laughs) Yeah. And it it sounds like the gratitude journal that you mentioned may also spark that social connectedness that Mm -hmm. we, I, I think most of us are in need of right now yeah. and striving for whilst trying to be socially distant as well or physically distant. Yeah, because as you mentioned, you know, we're physically distant, but we don't necessarily have to be socially distant. I had a colleague that reached out to me recently and she doesn't, she's not in the University of Illinois. So she's a colleague from an organization that I work with. And she actually, she just sent me a text one day and she did, she was doing this gratitude journal. And she said, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm doing this and you were on my list today and I'm so grateful for you. And that changed my entire day. It made me so happy. (laughs) So I was, uh, it was it was just wonderful to hear, and then you know we were able to to maintain that connection. And I've, I've definitely become really really connected to many other people during this time that maybe I wouldn't have talked to. Um, and I think that's important for all of us to recognize that we're not alone, and that we have a lot of people out there who are there to support us. That's such a great, great recommendation. I love it. I think I'm going to start tomorrow morning. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I did it this morning. I actually had it written down right next to me and I need to reach out to these people that I put on there. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. You've answered a lot of the questions that we had for you today. Obviously, we wanted to know about your journey and the model that you helped develop and how it's been adapted. But do you have any final thoughts or remarks that you want to add? I think this time is just hard for so many people. You know, 
for children, for parents, for anybody who's experiencing the pandemic, which is all of us. Uh, and it is continuing. And we really have to recognize that, you know, a lot of the emotions that we're feeling, maybe we have a bad day and that's okay to have a bad day. And even just letting yourself know, practicing self-compassion and thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm having a bad day and this is normal that I'm having a bad day because it's a really stressful time and I can give myself uh, permission to feel a little bit stressed or a little bit down. But when I'm feeling down, you know, what are some things that I can do to, to help cope with the different challenges that you're feeling that day? Okay, so normalization of different feelings is, is really important and really a key strategy. Reaching out to others that you can talk to, you, you know, even if you can't identify somebody who who you can reach out to, even getting additional external support. Uh, there's a lot of mental health resources that are available right now. Also practicing, you know, mindfulness activities, practicing gratitude. Uh, and then another key factor to resilience is try to have forward thinking. We might not be able to see over the long term of what's going to happen because there's a lot of uncertainty, but even just forward thinking of, what can I do this week to take care of myself? So that type of forward thinking, what, you know, in the next two weeks, what am I going to do to support myself and also support others? And so there's, those are just some ideas that can really help even th through this really challenging time. Thank you so much for those great suggestions. Thank you. It's been really, it's been really fun to talk to you all today. And I, Love talking about the Journey of Hope program and its origins. It uh, was very grassroots, pre me being a researcher back when I was a clinician. And I, it's been wonderful to see this program grow and adapt and reach so many children. Yeah, it's just an incredible story of full circle and <sighs> even another, another circle beginning with the virtual path for this. Yeah, yeah. And the piloting is good and we're going to learn from mistakes and try to really support children and, and make it the best program that we can. Mm -hmm.